Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show my friend, Dr. Daryl Bricker, who is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, one of the world's leading polling and public affairs firms. Daryl, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Vago. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And our coverage of the Navy League's Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show are sponsored by GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, Leonardo DRS, HII, and Helicon Chemical. Daryl, I wanted to start with global uh, sentiments, um, right? We've, uh, the world is still sort of, you know, for some people, they completely forget that we did have a pandemic going on for a while. It was only until recently that the Chinese uh, changed tack as well, one of the last countries that was uh, enforcing COVID uh, restrictions. Um, and this sense that sort of singular crises uh, has been replaced by poly crises that, you know, the, the world has now a multiplicity of concerns on its mind. From a global perspective, what are the trends we're finding in populations, no matter where, where they are in the world now? So that's a really interesting uh, point, because there has been a lot of talk about this poly crisis. And, and the truth is uh, that we're not really seeing that in terms of public opinion. Now, the idea of the poly crisis is that we went from a mono crisis, which was uh, the uh, the pandemic, and as that space moved out and as public concern settled down about that, and uh, we got the pandemic under control, that it uh, that all of these other crises that existed prior to the uh, the pandemic would would reemerge, and it would be almost like a hydra of things that uh, that uh, the public would be focused on. But that's not what's happened. In fact, what's happened is almost in lockstep with the decline of public concern about the crisis has been the rise of public concern about inflation. And inflation is what real people call the cost of living. So the day-to-day expenses of just getting by in your life, uh, people are very worried about that. Places like Argentina never went away, but it's almost like we've all become Argentinians. Almost every country that you go to now, you ask them what the most important issue is, uh, and it is uh, it is definitely inflation or the cost of living. We do a survey every month in 30 countries, and it has topped the list. In fact, right. it's now on the anniversary of it being at the top of the list. Oh, wow. Obviously, uh, it's been a year, and I want to ask you about global sentiment uh, about Russia's war on Ukraine in a moment as that conflict spans into its second year. Uh, China uh, is increasingly becoming a challenge. The balloon incident uh, for for both of our great nations sort of underscored the threat uh, from uh, China. Um, What are some of the other uh, uh, crises whether it's the Ukraine war, whether it's China or anything else that looms large uh, on, on your uh, dashboard of global sentiment? Well, most of them seem to be local, Falco. So it's so if you ask people in Latin America, what do they care about? Well, they care about corruption and crime. If you ask people in you know relatively well-off countries what they care about, say, for example, Australia or Canada or Germany, climate 
tends to be near the top of the list. Uh, it, it, it really depends on what you see happening in your local environment, determines what you're most concerned about. The one thing that they do have in common, though, is that they tend to have inflation right at the top of the list, mm. or at least number two or three as their most important issue. So it, it, it's, it's another mono crisis in the sense that it's, it's people are really focused on the cost of living rather than a, this, this hydra of all sorts of issues uh, becoming dominant at the global level. There's these multi-local issues, depending on the context that you're in, that seem to have more importance. Um, um, but uh, the overwhelming top of mind issue these days is, is inflation. Is there a sense at all, right? I mean, if you look at inflation, I mean, it's in part caused by uh, coming out of the pandemic. Uh, during the pandemic, folks did get um, stimulus payments and the Paycheck Protection Program, right, PPP uh, monies uh, and the like. Is there is there a sense, you know, and in, and in many cases, the economies uh, around the world are improving, um, right? Energy prices have been uh, declining. Um, availability, you know, I mean, eggs, there's an egg shortage. On the other hand, there's more availability here and there. I mean, is, is there... Are folks making some of these connections that actually the overall situation may actually be getting better, right? Or is this more sentiment that might be divorced from actual economic reality, in a sense? Well, the, what people are telling us on the surveys is when they go out and they try to buy things, things just seem more expensive or more expensive than they used to be. Uh, have they factored in uh, the fact that they might have more uh, money in the in their savings account as, as a result of some government programming? Not really. Uh, it, it's really more of the things that they come into encounter that they encounter on a day-to-day basis. Just like back in the 1970s, you know, how much is a how much is a you know a, a gallon of milk or a liter of milk or however you want to look at it or how much does it cost you to buy some butter or some margarine or some bread? How much is a loaf of bread? The, the feeling or how much are fresh vegetables? How the feeling that all of those things are going up at a faster rate than their pay is going up is the thing that has people very concerned. But right at the top of the list, particularly in developed countries, uh, where you see the, the factor that you see really leading public concern is the cost of housing. Right. So the ability to access what they would consider to be the type of house that they feel that their economic success, so this is more of a middle class issue, that their, their economic success has entitled them to, they don't feel that that's as, as possible as it once was. And that's where right. interest, rates, interest rates come in here. Um, and uh, and it's uh, interesting, right? You've written about uh, this crisis, uh, r- r- right? That it's f- folks who are living longer, living more healthily, uh, and folks are staying in houses that they would have moved out of, right? So in part, it's it's you know increasing lifespans and quality of life that actually is driving a housing shortage in part. Yeah, and there, there's that, and and also the very rapid. Uh, urbanization that we've seen take place since the end of the Second World War. Um, so in both your country and my country, you know, over 80% of the population lives in an area that could not be described as rural or small town. And so as we concentrate uh, populations in certain parts of the country uh, that are in demand, uh, uh, you, you find that the price of real estate goes up, but not just the price of buying a place, but also renting a place. So uh, particularly people who are in that um, kind of middle-aged sort of older millennials, uh, you know, Gen X types who are 
should be in a, a part of their life where they feel that they are going should be uh, uh, taking advantage of of, of their of, of their success. Don't feel that one of the things that they uh, that that marks that success, the access to what they consider to be a middle class home in, a, in the right neighborhood, is available to them. So that's a really also a point of pressure when it comes to the cost of living. So it's not just about the day-to-day costs, although that's a lot of what's driving it these days. It's also the sense that, you know, this generation or current generations or the upcoming generations aren't going to be as able to do as well as the, uh, the earlier generations. Uh, look, I mean, this is uh, right part of a piece uh, that um, the, the challenge is folks are living longer. We have better medical technology. And as a consequence, um, folks cost more money, uh, right? If they're going to, retire. I mean, we had the, the debate obviously in France, right? Raising the retirement age from 62 to 64 wasn't even enough. Uh, and yet that's caused a big backlash in France. Has any government, Daryl, in your mind, and I want to go to the security part of this, but I mean, indeed, each one of these factors are a security driver in their own right, right? Is there, have, have any governments basically figured out to crack the code on what the right amount of taxation is to ensure a viable state that can support a population that may be living into their 80s and have an expectation of, you know, good roads, good services, good medical care and the like, because it seems like the big disconnect is how much we're willing to pay for what it is that we expect from our governments, right? And on top of that, add security, threat from Russia, threat from China and the like. Yeah, I think that the first part of that, Vago, is just denial. I mean, we're in, we have a completely wrong perception around the world on what's happening to the world's population. So we have this, uh, I would say, conventional wisdom that's actually not even conventional, isn't even correct. And that's that the global population is out of control, that we're going to reach, you know, between somewhere around 11 billion people uh, by the end of the century. And, oh, my God, we're going to run out of resources. And in fact, what the, uh, the exact opposite is starting to happen, which is that birth rates have collapsed. Uh, most of the population growth in the world these days is as a result of people not dying as fast as they used to. But we continue to think that the world's population is structured and is expanding in the way that I just described. But we're going to peak probably somewhere in the 19 or 2040s, 2050s, and the population is going to decline pretty rapidly. Um, and what population is going to be left is going to be older. And so what we're going to see is a redistribution of, of uh, public finances away from things like schools and maybe even defense over to dealing with something that really nobody's prepared to deal with, which is this rapidly aging, massive older population uh, that is going to require a lot of services, everything from long-term care to uh, things like, for example, dealing with dementia, which there is going to be an epidemic in, in the world in terms of being able to deal with it. Uh, you know, you're not going to be able to build aircraft carriers if you're paying for that. This is one of the things that China is going to run into very, very fast because its population is the most rapidly aging in the world. Uh, and, and that uh, carries with it uh, some fascinating uh, uh, dynamics. L- let me take you to uh, the question of uh, Russia's war uh, on Ukraine now one year into the conflict. Um, it has redefined European security in a way uh, that has been uh, profound. 
uh, largest land war in, in Europe since the Second World War. Uh, it is redefining the alignment of the so-called global south, although there are folks who say that that phrase shouldn't be used. And this is happening at the same time that Moscow and Beijing are finding greater common cause as concerns with China's behavior uh, grows, uh, whether that's coming out of Washington, whether that's coming out of Brussels, or whether that's coming out of Ottawa, uh, even if uh, Canada, the United States, and Europe continue to be major trading powers. Let's start with Russia's war on, on Ukraine. What are the global sentiments in the wake of, of that war? Because despite the outrage, that's not really translating into you know the kind of punishment maybe Russia needs to be suffering at the end of the day. Yeah, so uh, in terms of global public opinion, there really isn't a lot of global public opinion. It's basically mm -hmm. regional public opinion. So the closer you are to the conflict, the more that you care about it. But even people who are living in places that are bordering uh, uh, Russia, say, for example, like Poland, you ask them the most important, or Ukraine, sorry, if you ask people in, in Poland what their biggest issue is, it's, it's inflation. So um, the interesting thing about uh, the war in Ukraine is it gets a lot of attention from people who are involved in the security space, but it's not getting that much attention in terms of public opinion. Uh, the public opinion tends to be very localized around areas that are particularly um, uh, uh, affected by what's going on in the war. And to the extent that people do have concerns about what's going on in the war in terms of their own local situation, it tends to be the economic effects rather than the security effects. So the cost of oil and gas, for example. So everything goes back to a pocketbook issue uh, at the end of the day, as opposed to it being seen as purely a security issue. Oh, look, you know, Moscow has invaded a sovereign country on its border. It's more sort of the economic impact of it that that is really getting people's attention. Right. And then there are countries like, for example, if you go to India or you go to I'm trying to think of some, some uh, you know, uh, Latin American countries or whatever, and you ask them about Russia and Ukraine, uh, they're, in, you know, maybe the United States position or the West position and all of this, kind of somewhat divided and ambiguous. It's not as clear cut for them as it is for people who I think are more invested in the issues and invested in the war. Um, so it's not something that's taken the, the global public opinion by storm by any stretch. And I should uh, point out to the audience uh, that Daryl is uh, the co-author with John Ibbotson uh, uh, of the book Empty Planet, uh, The Shock of Global Population Decline, where he talks about, uh, they talk about the dynamics uh, and the issues that policymakers should be bearing in mind uh, in this uh, great global uh, emptying. Um, well, Vago, I should just, for your listeners, I should just say that we were wrong in the book about what's happening. Everything that we talked about in the book is actually happening way faster than John and I predicted. Because at the time that we wrote it, uh, China was supposed to start declining in the 2030s. It's, it's started declining now in terms of its, uh, its population. Uh, the, the COVID pandemic, and that happened after we wrote the book, has had an absolutely destructive effect on global fertility rates, where we've got many countries report recording all-time lows in terms, of, uh, in terms of the number of kids that people are, are having. And you've also got countries that experienced an excessive amount of death, unexpected death among older citizens. Remember I said before, that's the fastest growing part of the population. Right. So some of the things that were, we talked about in this book have actually moved forward by at least a decade. And, so, this is, so this is imminent. This is happening now. Um, and so what are the repercussions of that, right, uh, Daryl? Because there is a concern with China that the Chinese may 
miscalculate and that actually all of these dynamic factors could uh, make it more dangerous and more prone to miscalculation. What does some of the data tell you uh, first on how China is seen as a threat, right? I mean, something that's been changing, but moreover, how these demographic drivers could actually contribute to miscalculation on Beijing's part? Well, the first problem that they've got is a labor force problem because their workforce is aging rapidly and declining on a daily basis. Uh, and the reason that, that China has become such an important player in, in the global economy is because of their access of, of many global corporations to cheaper labor. And it's why they, they, they invested in that economy to begin with. But also, um, you know, uh, consumer activity. So if we look at China as a, as a major consumer market, declines with age. So what China represented in the uh, people's aspirations of what uh, is, is supposed to happen in terms of the global economy is not happening and is in fact declining every day. Uh, so their economic power is in, uh, um, in, in somewhat uh, question going forward. And then the second thing is military power tends to be a product of younger populations. I mean, you need to have people to serve in your military. And China's population, the median age today is 39. It's a year older than the US population. And it's probably even older than that, um, given what's been happening most recently in terms of fertility rates. So, you know, they have a rapidly aging population that's going to have an effect on them economically, but also militarily. So uh, anybody who's worried about China, uh, now's the time to worry about them, because over time, uh, their ability to actually assert their economic and political will is going to decline. So are you willing to put a window of vulnerability from your standpoint? I mean, is it a two-year, three-year, five-year? I think the next decade in China and its relationship to particularly the Western world is going to be critical. And it's because they're going through so much change that they can't reverse. It's one thing to impose a one-child policy to uh, reduce your rapidly aging or a rapidly expanding population. How do you get people to have more kids than they want? That's not a problem that's easy to solve. And so as, as, uh, as, as much ability as the Chinese state has to make some pretty uh, profound changes and things that are happening, everything from building airports to roads to Olympic stadiums or whatever, they can't get the Chinese to more, more Chinese people. So I don't know what they're going to do about that. And it is an existential problem for, for, for China. And they are absolutely trapped in this low fertility trap. And uh, is the, are inflation concerns also contributing to uh, the emptying, uh, specifically the, 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 you know, is it dissuading people from having kids, ultimately? There, there's some elements of that, Vago, but the truth is that when you go out and you ask people, what are the main reasons that you don't have kids? The main reason is they just don't want them. Why? Because it's an interference in the type of life that you feel that you want to live. So that sense of whether it's a family obligation, a sense of a state obligation, a sense of a religious obligation, all of those things that create the environment in which people feel that they're compelled to have kids just don't exist to the same degree that they used to. And particularly when you're in a situation in which we've seen such a rapid urbanization of the global population, kids on the farm, you know, that's extra labor. Kids in the city are a big expense. So people are just not prepared to make the sacrifice the way that they used to. Uh, 
And as a result of that, um, and they can dress it up in all sorts of reasons, expenses, or I don't want to have kids because I'm worried about climate change or whatever. The real reason that they're not doing it is because they just don't want to for whatever motivation, but most of it is related to the personal sacrifice that's related to having a family. And since that's gone out of fashion, it has had a uh, tremendous impact on not just China's ability to, uh, uh, to, to reproduce itself, even in the United States, has just had a century low fertility rate. Hmm. And there's no sign that it's going to come back up. Is there, what, what does, right, so India now is the most populous nation on the planet, having uh, supplanted China. What does the surplus population mean for India, its competitiveness and its sort of security role, ultimately? Well, India is going to have a, a longer window than, uh, or longer runway, at least, than China. But India is about to go through the same thing. And the reason is because their uh, population, even though it's much younger than, uh, than China's population and their fertility rate is higher, it's not that much higher. The Indian fertility rate today is two. Uh, to have a replacement rate, rate, that's just replacing the people who are uh, dying every year in a country. It needs to be 2.1. And in a country that's a developing country like India, it needs to be higher because infant mortality is higher. Uh, they're far below their replacement rate already. So I think some of the more uh, uh, accurate projections about um, what's going to happen in India is that they're going to lose a significant number of people uh, as well. Uh, the estimates I've seen is around 300 million, which, is, by the way, is the same same uh, size as the U.S. population. But over the course of this century, they're going to lose a significant number of, of, of Indians from their population as well. So, um, you know, longer, uh, longer runway than, uh, than China has, but heading in the same direction. The only region that's actually going to see uh, longer term population growth is, is Africa. And what does that mean? Well, that means that we're going to have a redistribution of global consumer power and potentially global political power because power tends to follow where the people are. And um, in, uh, in Africa, it's the only place in the world right now in which you have a number of countries that are above significantly above uh, a replacement rate fertility rates. But even in Africa, the numbers are coming down as well. Um, so, but for a period of time, so if you've got a long, a short, actually no runway in China, a bit of a runway in India, you have a bit more of a runway in Africa, but eventually they'll go through the same, uh, same trend as, uh, as, as every other part of the world has gone through. Um, is there any, uh, especially in the wake of the balloon uh, issue, uh, but obviously with decoupling uh, and the like, has, what, what's the sense of China uh, as a threat right during the pandemic, uh, there was, uh, you know, I mean, it did reflect negatively on, on China. Uh, the wolf warrior diplomacy didn't do it any uh, good. We've now emerged uh, from all of that. Uh, and China's working really hard to try to normalize its relationship. But now you've also got the war and its sort of alignment or perceived alignment with the Russians. Is that driving any sort of global perception uh, which when I think you and I spoke at Halifax, you know, the, the Chinese brand was a little bit down as the American brand and Western brands were up. Russian brand uh, was a little bit declining. I mean, is, is there a sense on where they're ranking at a time when more people are regarding China as a potential security threat? In terms of global opinion, um, they took a, a, a serious hit in terms of reputation as a result of COVID 
rightly or wrongly, uh, and they haven't come back. Um, and, but now you you know layer on things like, for example, the balloon incident, uh, you know the hobnobbing with the Russians uh, and uh, doing what they're doing in, in places like Taiwan and representing a regional threat. Um, it's none of that has helped them. Uh, and even in situations like in Australia and Canada, where they've been accused of election interference, that's not helping them either. So, uh, you know, on the list of countries that people uh, have problems with these days, most global, when you go out and you ask people on, on, uh, on, uh, on surveys, uh, you know, countries they have a high regard for, uh, China doesn't do as well as it used to do. That's for sure. And what are perceptions of the United States uh, in this, right? Because um, there is this sense that the world is is fracturing uh, almost on Cold War lines, right? The the Russians and the Chinese uh, on one side, India, a number of other sort of non-aligned countries. Uh, you were, I think, recently in South Africa, right? A lot of criticism even in South Africa for uh, sort of seeming to align increasingly with China and Russia and certainly holding, uh, participating in joint naval exercises. Uh, and then Europe and the United States on, on, the, on the other side. I mean, is, is this reflected, these blocks, are they reflected in the polling data that you're getting? And, and, I, and, how the, and how the United States is perceived uh, as a leader of, you know, Western democracies, which is something the administration has tried, uh, tried very hard to, to burnish. Well, you know, it's, it's difficult for Americans to hear this. <laughs> I'm going to say it anyway. Um, you know, they're not as popular around the world as they might think they are. Hmm. Um, I, I would describe most of global public opinion around these issues as being somewhat ambiguous. Um, so if you go to a place like Canada, for example, the United States, particularly uh, um, you know, under a situation like, for example, the Trump situation, universally not really liked. Uh, things have improved under the Biden administration, but there's this historical legacy of the United States being a superpower and being part of the Cold War and participating in world affairs as it did that has not necessarily left a great taste in the mouths of, of, of people in significant countries, like say, for example, in Latin America or in uh, places, like, uh, places like the Middle East, or even in, in some countries in Europe, like France, Germany, uh, um, you know, all of those countries, Italy, uh, the, the, the views of the populations are, uh, while they would have a preference for the United States, it's not like it's zero one, like we all hate the Russians and we all love the Americans. It doesn't, tend to be that way. So I'd say the jury is out on a fair number of these questions that relate to the power blocks. And, and to be honest, Vago, why wouldn't it be? It's a fairly new thing. That's interesting. Do Russians, for example, and the Chinese work very hard globally uh, through, uh, right, you could say propaganda media or social media to try to portray itself as positive, uh, uh, you know, to, to portray a positive image of themselves, while also doing a whole bunch of, uh, you know, working very, very hard to undermine the United States and democracies and how they're perceived. And there's a concern in Washington that Washington actually doesn't do a particularly good job selling itself uh, ultimately. How much of this is, you think, attributed to, you know, two very influential nations in the world sort of actively 
fighting a PR war while undermining democracies. And democracies actually not doing all that much to sell themselves, right? I mean, regarding themselves as, well, it's self-evident. We're democracies. Of course, we're better. I mean, is there part of this a, a branding exercise? Well, well, maybe maybe some of it is. Um, but uh, the interesting thing about, about places like China and Russia, even though people might have more ambiguous opinions uh, um, than maybe they should have in certain parts of the world. It's not like those countries are aspirational. It's just that uh, the, the public has kind of middling views of them along with the United States. So uh, it, it's, it's not like, uh, say, for example, if you go to a place like France, people are absolutely, uh, you know, uh, uh, and unambiguously supportive of a country like the United States, even next door here in Canada, not necessarily um, uh, uh, 100% behind the United States. But it's not like their aspiration, the, 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 Ch the China represents an aspirational ally in, in that sense. It's not like people are saying, hey, we should be a lot more like China. They're not, uh, they're, they're, they're not there. It's just that uh, I think people have more of a, um, I would say, uh, ambiguous point of view on countries these days. They're not all for them or all, uh, all against them. Mm -hmm. If you're a superpower, you're kind of seen as somewhat equivalently, mm -hmm. particularly between China and the United States. And especially when you go to places like developing markets where they might have a different point of view. Uh, so for example, like Latin America. Oh yeah, I'm sorry, go, go ahead say that again. Especially places like, for example, Latin America or Africa. Let me ask you uh, one last question, which is uh, an immigration question. Historically, uh, the immigration debate in the United States is, is, is centered uh, on the southern uh, border uh, and some very unfortunate incidents uh, recently or immigration from the Caribbean. But it, it's very rare, uh, although it, I think, has happened uh, historically where there's immigration from the United States also into Canada to the point where it's gotten bad enough that Prime Minister Trudeau and President Biden had to sign an agreement very similar to the agreement the United States has signed with Mexico. Hey, you guys got to do a better job keeping folks on your side of the border. And obviously our two uh, great nations uh, have the longest unprotected border. And unfortunately, there have been some very, uh, some tragedies really, uh, as folks have tried to cross that border, uh, especially this time of year. What, how is all of this playing, um, right? I mean, give us a sense on immigration how immigration is playing on both sides of our borders, given that at least on this side of the border, it's, it's a political, you know, it remains a political hot button. Yeah. In the United States, it's top five issue in Canada. It's maybe a top 20 issue. Hmm. Uh, so the level of intensity of opinion around immigration in the United States is not replicated in Canada. Um, and uh, part of it is because we don't really share a Southern border with Latin America. So we're not experiencing the same thing in Canada as they are in the United States. Almost all of the immigration that comes to Canada these days are people we've actually brought to Canada. A lot of students who stay, a lot of people that we, you know, almost like recruit from, from other countries to come in here and, and, uh, and, and become Canadians. Um, so uh, people's attitudes about immigration in this country are not uh, the same as, as they are in the United States. That doesn't mean, however, that immigration is popular. It's just not really a political issue here. And it's not one that tends to divide people into factions. Um, uh, people still do 
have concerns about immigration uh, these days, particularly when you put it in the context in Canada of increasing housing prices. We bring in about 1% of our population, actually more than that now, over the space of the last couple of years um, uh, to, uh, to uh, become Canadians. And it's not like they move all over this big country. They tend to move to the major cities and it's had an effect on the cost of real estate. So there's potential for, um, uh, um, for uh, some, some problems around that. And also the pressure that's put on public services as you, uh, as you bring people into the country. But uh, what was signed between um, the prime minister of, of Canada and the president of the United States was a, um, an agreement to allow uh, Canada to, um, uh, uh, honor that uh, that aspect of, of refugees because that's what we're talking about here particularly where people are supposed to claim refugee status in the first country that they go to and what was happening was that you had people flying into uh, JFK in the United States uh, getting in New York and getting on buses and going to the Quebec, uh, Quebec uh, 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 um, New York border and simply crossing and claiming refugee status um, and the way the system is supposed to work is you're supposed to uh, go to, uh, uh, you know, go to the stay in the first country in which you can possibly claim refugee status. And that wasn't happening. So uh, that's what they signed in the agreement to stop. Um, so we're regularizing the system of refugees coming into the country. And uh, I think one of the trade-offs was that Canada has agreed to accept a certain number of refugees from, um, uh, from uh, South, South America, Latin America, however you want to describe it. Uh, but has that created any sort of political consequences in the Canadian context? The answer is really no. Wow. It's not a controversial, it's hugely controversial issue here as it is in the United States. Uh, fascinating. One one last thing. We are in the midst of uh, debt uh, debates uh, in the United States. I mean, again, uh, toying with potential uh, default. Um, the United States credit rating has not recovered from that which gave birth to the uh, Budget Control Act, uh, which we on this program have a tendency of discussing, uh, unfortunately, uh, too much. Uh, what do you think uh, policymakers need to be bearing in mind? I know you talked about it a little bit earlier, but what do policymakers need to be bearing in mind uh, about the public purse debt uh, and and demography, which is um, right a, a prime ultimate driver in all of this? Well, we're moving into a period in terms of global uh, population change in which the ability to create large amounts of economic growth as a result of uh, serving growing populations is going to go away. And as a result of that, um, trying to find a way to grow the economy that we did after the same way that we did after the Second World War, when we had a huge baby boom and a whole youthful population that we're going to take, uh, take advantage of, which is much responsible for a lot of the economic growth that we've seen over the space of the last you know, 80 years. Uh, is going to be impossible to replicate. So we're going to be in a low growth economic environment for a considerable period of time. And uh, at the same time as we're seeing the cost of taking care of the population is going to go up. So the previous dependency ratios, that was the number of people who are working to take care of younger people in the educational system and all that kind of thing, is now shifting over to a dependency ratio that's driven by working people having to take care of a lot of seniors. The difference in the early days was it was going to be a temporary thing as younger people were going to join the workforce. In 
the current period that we're moving into, that's not going to be the case, or it's going to be a, a long, expensive goodbye for, for, for the baby boom. And most countries in the world are not, well, actually all countries in the world are really not prepared to deal with this. And the magnitude of the issue that we're going to be dealing with is considerable. It's never happened before, Vago. I mean, if you take a look at uh, global population, it took us to uh, 1950 to get to 2.5 billion people. Today, we're 8 billion people. We're probably not going to hit 9 billion people, but what we're going to see is we're going to see the peak in decline very soon. And when it declines, it's going to be like falling down a mountain in the dark. Just as disruptive as it was on the way up, it's going to be equally disruptive, if not more disruptive, on the way down. And just about the only people talking about it are you and me today on this podcast. And what's the crisis year from your uh, standpoint? What's the year that mentally we need to note as the most problematic, the the sort of the the, the fall down the mountain pass, if you will? I, I think that uh, based on current projections, uh, probably around 2040. So, um, but it's already happening. I mean, 2030, the entire baby boom is going to be 65 years of age or older. You know, that's, that, that's, that's what we're facing. 2030. So seven years away. Unbelievable. Daryl, it is always a pleasure having you on this uh, program. Uh, truly mean it. Uh, some profoundly thoughtful stuff each time we talk and it's a pleasure having you on. Thanks so very much and already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks, Vago.